Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the University of Portsmouth. And in this episode, we take a look at something most of us take for granted, the two-day weekend. But are two days enough? Brad Bevan is a professor in social and cultural history at the University of Portsmouth. Employees like the three-day weekend. They like the focus of work, so they don't want a seven-day holiday or whatever. They've seen improvement in well-being, and they've surveyed the employers about what their thoughts were. And 85% said that it was working well, and 95% said they'd lost no production. As you'll hear, even the two-day weekend is a relatively new development in the Western world. So how did we get to where we are today? How likely is it that we'll be enjoying a four-day working week anytime soon? And how do both employees and employers feel about it? If you're listening to this, counting down the hours to the next couple of days off, then you might be surprised that the two-day weekend is a fairly recent invention in the UK. People were used to working in the 1920s and 30s on a half day, Saturday morning, and then having a holiday Saturday afternoon and on Sunday. So the two-day working week, the weekend, as we we now call it, because that wasn't a a term early in the early 20th century, only starts in the the post-war period, the post-Second World War period. We'll get to the reasons behind a Saturday afternoon off in a moment, but as a Western country, Sunday's off. So everyone gets to go to church makes more sense, right? Well, not exactly. The Christian calendar had Sunday as the day observance, so that carries on to the modern period. I mean, in 1851, they do a a census of religious observance, and less than half of the population is observing the Sunday church. So people aren't going to church, even in the mid-19th century. When we expect the religious sort of observance to be the strongest, the Victorian period, many of the working class people weren't going. So although it's supposed to be a day of religious observance, for many it was a day of rest and entertainment, even then. What the religious leaders did, they told people to go to church on that census day. And so you probably get a higher number of people registered as going to church than they would normally because they were told to go. So you can really get the sense that the religious was important in every aspect of society, but actually going to church for many working class families in these large industrial cities that are growing rapidly is not part of their Sunday routine. I don't know about you, but I have this picture of a rural Victorian Britain where the farm workers are all too tired to attend church on a Sunday. But Brad says the challenge for church going in the 1800s extended to the urban areas as well. If you look at how the cities emerge, where is this sort of country, sort of rural, sort of town, hamlet, or sort of small town would have a church at the centre, at the civic centre of that town. The way these large cities were building outwards into the suburbs without any religious instruction, and that's what really also concerned the Victorians. The religious message wasn't getting through to many working people at that time. There was no sort of regulations for buildings. Buildings were being built rapidly in all these major cities. So there wasn't a space for religious observance for many people anyway. So what was happening with all those not in church on a Sunday? The history of that starts around the time of the Industrial Revolution. It's all to do with the rhythms of work. Many workers had a sort of agrarian rhythm of work. 
So in the countryside, people would go out into the country as a labourer and work when they could. So in terms of the seasons, the weather. And so leisure and work was often sort of mixed. It wasn't sort of demarcated in that way. They would work if there was a poor weather on a Wednesday, they couldn't work, they would engage in leisure. So it was a very sort of unstructured way of working, very rhythmic in terms of work and leisure. That was sort of carried on by many of the artisans. These are skilled working men have done an apprenticeship and have some sense of control over what they're doing. So it could be people like cobblers manufacturing shoes from scratch and they would be skilled workers. They'd have a target number of products to make and they would work intensively through the week. So come Saturday when they had to deliver these goods, they would deliver them Saturday evening and then they would celebrate the fact they'd got the money and then usually drink heavily on a Sunday. Again, there was no religious observance for many of these people. And then they would make the recovery from that on the Monday and that was known as Saint Monday so amongst working class communities they effectively adopted a two-day holiday but informally so it'd be Sunday and Saint Monday so it was never official industrialists hated it because it interrupted the industrial routine so technically there were many in the UK throwing a hangover induced sickie on a Monday morning what's the phrase Everything changes, but nothing changes. But it's the religious and philanthropic organisations, rather than industry, that get together to push the idea of a Saturday afternoon off. They campaign under the slogan, the half-day movement. And what they try to do is encourage employers to give people a half-day on Saturday afternoon, so they would then give up on the St Monday. So you're giving up a whole day, but for a half-day that was an official holiday. So these are people like religious organisations or religious leaders and also philanthropic people want to see an improvement in morals. So the idea was that if people took the half day, they'd be refreshed in the afternoon to go to church the next day. And it would also remove that element of heavy drinking. They thought if they would also provide what they called rational recreation. So these philanthropic groups decided to put things on if employers adopted this put entertainment on on a Saturday afternoon that was philanthropic, so they called rational recreation. So it'd be things like teetotal picnics, it would be trips to the museums. And so these were put in often by philanthropists or employees to encourage workers not to go to the pub, but do these sort of more enlightening, civilised as they called. So the half day holiday on Saturday afternoon was a way of culturally enriching these sort of workers who they felt needed to be culturally enriched. If you're a big football fan, you'll be pleased to hear that your favourite Saturday afternoon activity was also considered a culturally enriching activity back in the 19th century. A lot of football teams like Aston Villa were formerly religious teams that were recruited by the Church of England to keep people away from the pub, to Christian sort of athleticism, muscular Christianity. And so it was the idea of having people play football and watch football on Saturday afternoon to keep them out of the pub. I mean, that didn't work, obviously, because people see the pub now very much part of the football culture. But the idea was to remove people from the pub on a Saturday afternoon. And train companies would also put on cheaper train fares for Saturday afternoon to take people out to London if they're in the southeast or the Midlands or uh, to the seaside to visit. And again, in a rational way, keeping them away from the pub. Here are some Life Solve podcast recommendations. 
Life's too short to fully examine it, but here are some podcasts to help you make some progress. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy podcast is a deep-dive philosophy reading group that's been downloaded nearly 50 million times. Based on its success, host Mark Linsenmeyer started the Nakedly Examined Music podcast, featuring career-spanning interviews with songwriters. You get to hear some great songs and learn about the creative decisions behind them. But maybe you're not that geeky about music or philosophy. Well, try Mark's Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where diverse panels of guests examine what we watch or otherwise consume. Finally, for the philosophy beginner who's not adverse to some comedy thrown into the mix, try Philosophy versus Improv. Mark and Chicago improv comedy instructor Bill Arnett teach each other their respective arts and bring on professional philosophers and or performers to keep things lively. Find out about all of Mark's podcasts at partiallyexaminedlife.com or look up the Partially Examined Life, Nakedly Examined Music, Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy versus Improv wherever you listen. If you're enjoying Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, then you might like one of our other episodes. From space, fabrics, films, environment, human biology, philosophy and much more, there's an episode for you. COVID created a huge and possibly permanent change in our working lives, and it bears some influence on the development of the four-day week today. So why not take a listen to Tech, Women and Work in Our Post-COVID Future from Season 5 back in 2021. I'm seeing a lot more choice being given to employees about returning to work or returning to the office and a lot more flexibility. And I think organisations are thinking quite differently now about how they make sure that if they are going to help their people work remotely and they are providing technology, how they also help them progress and develop. All the episodes from our first 11 series are available to stream for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let's recap. Today, we have a two-day weekend on a Saturday and Sunday. In the 18th century, many people were getting drunk on a Sunday and recovering on Saint Monday. In the 19th century, there was a move to a Saturday afternoon of wholesome activity followed by church on a Sunday, in theory. And so far, we've taken a look at the workers, the artisans, the industrialists, the church, entertainment and football. But there's another champion of the weekend that we haven't heard from yet. The trade union movement were also keen on officially having a Saturday half-day holiday because, again, they weren't keen on the St. Monday. It wasn't something they'd negotiated. This is something of traditional culture and custom, which, again, had immoral and decadence associated with it. And trade unions didn't want to be associated with that type of sort of rather brutal working-class culture. So they were keen on being representatives of the working class. I mean, at this late 19th century, there wasn't really a Labour Party and so the big sort of left-wing movements or sort of people claiming to represent the working class were the large trade unions. And in the late 19th century, they were keen on being at the table with employers. And one way of doing that was negotiating not only rates of pay, but when people worked. So you had to then define the weekend or the certainly half-day holiday. So the half-day holiday becomes part of the negotiations into individual companies and trade unions. So they were, again, a very important dynamic in this creation of the weekend. But don't think St Monday was easily binned off. It was difficult to shift people's mentalities out of the St Monday ideal. And this started in the mid-19th century, the challenge to St Monday. And you still see it going on in some districts in the early 20th century. So it reaches the 20th century. So I've read 
as parliamentary reports on industrialization and productivity and the, you've got employers in i think it's west bromwich saying they're still attached to this this idea of saint monday still in the 20th century they're throwback to a previous period and so they're really frustrated that people will not shift from these customs and cultures they've, they've had so how do we get the saturday and sunday weekend that many of us know today it's actually got something to do with a shop we might pop into if we're suffering our own St. Monday hangover. The half-day holiday becomes quite standard by the 1920s and 30s. Britain's going through quite a rapid industrialised manufacturing element, especially the things like the car industry, which is really taking off and they employ huge amounts of workers that dominate cities and they adopt this half-day holiday on the Saturday. And then the footballers in the afternoon, is the best tradition there. So it became a tradition in itself. So it becomes part of a routine of particularly working-class life, particularly if there's football in the afternoon and in, in these really industrialised areas. But this carries on into the 1920s and 30s, and we still haven't the two-day weekend. But one of the first companies that starts this process is Boots, the chemists. And this starts in the 1930s when there's a Great Depression, huge amounts of unemployment in Britain. But Boots was quite a philanthropic company at that time. And so as a way of keeping staff on, and they didn't have enough work, they kept staff on, but they gave them an extra day holiday, a whole day holiday. So that's then when they started Saturday and Sunday as a weekend. And they were unusual because it was time of depression. There was huge amounts of unemployment, but they wanted to give something back to their workers in that sense. And there was some philanthropic and quite a paternalist company thought one way of doing that to keep these employees to give them that extra half day to create this weekend as we know it. And then comes the Second World War. After the Second World War, there's a labour shortage. So employers want to keep hold of their workers. I mentioned the motor industry. It was quite common for workers to go from one company to another because of better wages. Just You could easily do that without any problems because there was a, it's a full employment, essentially, after the Second World War. So what employers wanted to do at that point was to make a more attractive workplace. And one way of doing that was to add that extra half a day onto your one and a half days to create the weekend. And so companies across Britain respond to this and have to create, really, the, the two-day weekend that we're all familiar with. So that's the history of the weekend in the UK to date. But how have things changed in other countries over the centuries? If you look at the, Europe particularly, it's very much similar to Britain in the sense that it has a Christian dimension as a Sunday. And the most productive way of creating a regular working week was to add something to the religious day of observance. So you know, there's a common sort of application then of the weekend because for employers, it seemed more uh, fitting to have that as a one and a half days together and then work consistently. The only exception to that was something they tried in Soviet Russia in the 1920s, and they were really keen on increasing productivity. What they wanted, they called the continuous working week, which sounds horrendous, and, and from all accounts it was. The idea there was that you would be randomly allocated a day for a holiday, and it wasn't two together. It was anywhere in the week, over a month or so. It was entirely unpopular because you weren't, allocated a day with your friends or your family people were complaining i've got my holiday I've got nowhere to spend it with but they wanted 80 percent volume of the factories working so 80 percent at work and 20 percent on holiday every day during the continuous working week so it, it didn't work they had to pull out by the end of the 1930s 
Here in the 21st century, there's lots of talk about the four-day week. You could buy books on the subject, newspapers have published articles about it, and some UK companies have even put the idea into practice. Post-COVID, the demands are becoming louder too. I think the last 10, 15 years, we've been talking about well-being at work. So that's obviously a big factor, employers wanting to make sure that their employees are looked after in that way. But I think there's also an economic element to it as well, with many countries suffering from a labour shortage, just like they were after the Second World War. So there's an element here, I think, and UK is a good example of this, of a labour shortage and employers wanting to keep their staff. And also, by keeping their staff in a, in a supportive environment, one that will have a shared goodwill and a staff with good well-being. It's a popular, amongst employees, move. And I think also what accelerated this is COVID and working from home has sort of blown apart that sort of structure of work of going in for five days a week and people working from home and not having to travel in and commute. So that gives that the fact that you're not commuting more time to work and perhaps you could then work over four days rather than five. We asked people in Portsmouth what they thought about the four day week. I definitely. Um Extend it into Monday, definitely. Yeah, so kick off on a Tuesday will be marvellous. Fridays are kind of like good because you're looking forward to the weekend, but Monday, yeah, I could do it Monday. Well, I think three days are going to be the best. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is going to be the. But I don't think, can't see it happen because we're self employed. Sometimes we work even weekends. So. Sometimes two days isn't enough, then you've got a little bit extra either side, and no one wants to be working Mondays. <laughs> Instead of it being work life balance, it should be like you have that rest. Because if you get like, three days, ideally, I think it's perfect for a weekend. And working Monday to Thursday, I think you put your heart into it because you know you've got something to look forward to. Seems like a four-day week is a popular suggestion. In which case, we have some good news. So the UK is experimenting with the largest survey of its kind on the four-day week. So it's uh, 70 employers, 3,300 workers are involved in this experiment. And those sort of vox pop feedback you got there very much fits with what they're saying in this survey that employees like the three day weekend, they like the focus of work. So they don't want a seven day holiday or whatever. They're talking about three days. They see an improvement in well-being, and they surveyed the employers about what their thoughts were. And 85% said that it was working well. So the whole experiment was working well. And 95% said they'd lost no production. That's the crucial thing. It was surprising in many ways. No production. They'd lost no production or actually improved it. So that survey seems to suggest that it's popular with employers and also employees because the production is working well in that way and life-work balance is improved in those workplaces. Don't expect change to come too quickly, though. If I look back into in history as a way of thinking about this, just as the sort of half-day holiday or the weekend was a slow burner, it took a long time for those things to become universal, I could see this being a very similar case because in many ways it depends on where you work, the employer, the type of work you do, which will allow you to have that four-day week. So I think it will eventually come but it will be a fairly fragmented process. There will be obstacles along the way. Lots of obstacles by the sound of things. There's a perception that it's not good for workers to have long leisure periods of three days, despite all the evidence saying that the 
experiment that's been going on in the UK at the moment, that productivity hasn't failed, that well-being is improved. Government this year has told one of the participants in the experiment, which is Cambridge County Council, to stop the experiment because they believe that it's not a value for money for taxpayers having council workers work for four days rather than five days a week. Now, that flies against all the evidence that this project is so far producing. But it's an image problem, I think, that the, the government has with council workers not working for those five days. So it's got to get over hurdles like that. And there will also likely be a need for some industries to continue a five-day week. How might that work while keeping everyone happy? One of the predictions coming out of this is that a lot of employers have issues now with matching pay demands for employers. And one way, perhaps, of getting around this is implementing a four-day week without a pay rise that is argued for. So it might soften the blow for workers if they know they're doing four days rather than five, but with a five-day payment. They're not losing pay by doing it four-day week. So you might see that the people doing the five-day week have a pay rise. I don't. It's difficult to say, but that it might be a way of employers being more attractive to employees if they implemented the four-day week in that way. And while a three-day weekend might sound attractive, a note of caution, in the UK, even a two-day break isn't guaranteed. These are arrangements made between employers and employees on the whole. And so there isn't an enshrined right. You have it, and a good example of this, and it's been in the news recently, is the train drivers having a dispute over when they should be working. So Sunday has always been seen as a day they don't have to work and they'd be paid overtime. And that's been back into the sort of early, mid-20th century. These arrangements are made between employers and employees, not the government. So that's lasted all this time when there's a dispute about those conditions changing. So this is a legacy of employee-employee relations, trade union relations. So that's where these arrangements are made. Very unusual, this government intervention, actually, in terms of stopping the, this idea of the experiment. That's a very rare intervention. They usually don't be not involved in the working week. It's usually left to employers in that way. And if Brad was presented with a three-day weekend, what extra day would he pick? Bring back St Monday, I'd say. <laughs> Monday. No, I think a Friday is a great day. I always look at Fridays. I think that's probably why we often work four days a week, because people see Friday as a holiday already, already probably. <laughs> but Fridays always seem to be a, a nice day to, well, I think would be a good day. You're having a long weekend, Friday's the day you normally take, I think. The journey to the two-day weekend has been fascinating, from St Monday to footballing Saturday afternoons. And whilst it will take some time, the four-day week seems to be an almost guaranteed part of our future. It has the potential to attract employees to companies who offer it nurtures better mental health and could actually drive productivity in the workplace. With the positive feedback already received from employers and employees, three days of rest and recuperation might be here for many of us sooner than we think. We'd love you to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. In the meantime, you can get news of the latest developments here at the university by going to our website, port.ac.uk. And we'd love it if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. Next time, we put parent shaming on the naughty step 
I've got a bit of a problem with self-help as a genre. It's too particular and narrow and sometimes it's too individual. You know, so if you follow my advice, you'll be happier. And I actually think some of the better solutions might be more communal. Bye for now. <laughs>